you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. When I was in the fourth grade, all of the students of my class were lined up and marched down to the gym uh, before the class day uh, got underway, and it was for the purposes of giving us all an eye exam. At the time, I didn't think much about that. They also came back then and did not only yearly, uh, or at least maybe every other year, eye exams, but also dental checks as well. And it was uh, all part of a, a local government program designed to make sure that kids were receiving the kind of health care that they needed. Again, I didn't think much about it until it was my turn to take the eye exam, in which time I realized I could only see clearly that massive E at the top of the chart. Before then, I had no idea that I needed glasses, but suddenly I was aware that I couldn't see. At least I couldn't see as clearly as I should have been able to see. And so a few weeks later, after sitting in the optometrist chair, I put on my new glasses and the world kind of exploded before me in terms of depth and texture and clarity, especially things at a distance. And though I loved being able to see more clearly, I can still remember sitting in that chair, looking out the window of the front of Sears department store, thinking, how could I have been so blind to my need? How could, how could I not know that I was missing all of this before me? This morning, Luke tells us something similar. He tells us a story of those who were blind to their blindness, of a group of people who could physically see, but spiritually could not perceive the truth that they thought they knew. In contrast to that, Luke also tells us about another man who was physically blind, but had a clarity of spiritual sight beyond many of his peers. And it's important that we understand these stories this morning because they're not only true accounts of the life of Jesus, but because they hold important implications and truths for our own lives today. Our own necessity of spiritual sight despite our spiritual blindness. So I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading Luke 18, verse 31. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is 
God's eternal and errant word. May we hear it and believe. There's a great contrast in these verses between blindness and sight, and it all revolves around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, as we think about these verses, we need to ask ourselves, can we see as clearly as we think we can see? Can we perceive the depth of gospel reality as we should? And can that be seen in how we live our lives? Those are the questions we want to ask and answer of ourselves as we unpack this passage. We begin by seeing first the gospel unveiled. The gospel unveiled. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus explicitly predicts his death for his disciples. The first two came in Luke chapter 9 when he, when he sets his face toward Jerusalem and says this is where we're headed and this is what's going to take place. And now they are arriving at Jerusalem. They, they are just on the outskirts ready to arrive and those events are about to take place. Now we should not think that Jesus never talked about his death or his resurrection, his saving work before then, but very often it was in allusions. It was in side comments quoting from other verses in the scriptures and here at least three times he is very clear on the details that he will die he will suffer he will die and he will rise again specifically he says verse 31 we are going to jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise now when you're studying english the best thing for you to do if you want to understand what you're reading is follow the verbs Right? That's where all the action is. So that's true for the Bible as well because we have the Bible in English before us. So look at the key ideas that are being conveyed just in the verbs that are given. We have the gospel itself in words like written, accomplished, delivered, mocked, flogging, kill, and rise. That all of those things are being put together, giving us the pattern of what is going to happen over the course of just a few days in Jesus' life that will bring salvation for us. Jesus is, as it were, unveiling the gospel with clarity for his disciples. Now, if we were to, we were to organize those verbs, that content to summary form, we might do it in three phrases, beginning with this. Here we see a planned redemption. We see a planned redemption. Jesus is talking with his disciples on their way to Jerusalem. Why are they going to Jerusalem? Because it is the time of the Passover. And he wants them to be ready for what is to come. They've been to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, more times than this together, but he wants them to know this time it's going to be different. This time he's, he, they're not just going to celebrate and then leave again and go do ministry. This is where it's all going to come to an end for them and the current relationship that they have. We're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus does not simply want to tell them about the details of what's going to happen. He wants to encourage them. He wants to assure them that this is not just going to happen on a whim and by some uncontrollable fate and we have no idea. No, 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 no. All this has been planned out ahead of time. All this has been promised ahead of time. All this has been predicted ahead of time. And now it's about to be accomplished. What is going to happen to me, though you may not be aware of it, though you may not be expecting it, 
is not something that is unexpected or unknown to God. That's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, all of history has been leading up to this very moment. The coming of Christ to Jerusalem to go to the cross and rise again from the dead. And God in different ways over many years has been telling people that this very thing is coming. You go back this afternoon, you begin tracing through the Old Testament if you want. Think about the great stories of creation and the global flood of Noah, the call of Abraham, the long history of Israel, the ascension of, uh, of David, the giving of the law through Moses, all these things. No one utters the name Jesus, but it's all about him. It's all pointing forward to him. It's all leading up to him and the sacrifice that he is going to make on the cross. The plan of God in history is focused on the Son of God and the salvation he will bring. And that's not just true of God's plan in a kind of big picture way, but even on the level of specific details that point us to the identity and the ministry of the promised Savior that Jesus will come in fulfillment of. Specifically, we see not just a planned redemption, but we see a crucified Redeemer. We see a crucified Redeemer. Jesus says that this Son of Man who is coming, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. Uh, these are just some of the details that surround the death of Christ. But each of these things was predicted in detail hundreds of years before they ever happened. And you see those things with alarming specificity from the Old Testament. That you would have some who would say there's no such thing as predictive prophecy. That, uh, that there's no supernatural work going on because uh, God doesn't exist in the book is, uh, of the Bible is a fabrication. Well, if it is, it's a very elaborate one. If the Gospels are in all historical documents, then, then Jesus had an amazing capacity to, to not, only, for not only cause where he would be born, I don't know who can do that, but when he could be born, uh, about who would follow him and how other people would, would respond. I mean, it, just, it, gets, it gets crazy. But maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God who has a plan. And knowing that plan, he tells us ahead of time what it is. You think just of, of two chapters, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And here is some of the detail that we see. We see the Son of Man would be forsaken by God. We see that he would be mocked by his enemies. In fact, we, we, we'll see later that, that uh, we're specifically told that, that people would gamble for his clothing, which happened to Christ. He would be tormented by thirst. He would be pierced in his hands and his feet, describing crucifixion. Hundreds of years in a different culture that didn't have crucifixion. He would be despised and rejected by men. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities until he was poured out in death. Now, why was that God's plan? Why is a crucified Redeemer what God wants to happen to His own Son? Like a man who steps in front of a bullet for his friend or a woman who endures an attack to save her children, Jesus put Himself in our place and was judged under God's wrath. He endured hell on the cross so that sinners might experience heaven with God. And Jesus did not come of His own accord, with His own plan. He was sent from the Father. And John tells us it was an act of love. In 1 John 4, we see this, that it is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We are saved, as it were, by God, from God. It is His wrath that we are saved from, and it is His Son by which we are saved. So it's a great love with which God loved us. He sent His Son 
to be our Redeemer, to die for us on the cross. But Jesus makes clear death is not going to be the end for him. Unlike us, it is not a final stop in this life. We also see in the gospel a triumphant resurrection. A triumphant resurrection. Jesus says they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus dies, and he is seemingly vanquished by his enemies. Yet Jesus' death was only temporary. Through death, he conquered death and was raised back to life. And by raising Christ back to life, God vindicated him. That is to say, he proved that Jesus was everything that he said he was. I mean, just on the level of predicting his death and then his resurrection, right? If, if you met somebody, they said, you know, uh, we're, we're going into this city and I'm going to get uh, beat up by thugs. I'm going to die, but don't worry about it. In three days, I'm going to come out of the morgue and I'm going to be alive again. You're going to say, huh, yeah, right. But he comes back to life. And what that means is that the, 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 the power, in some ways, the audacity against everything we think we know about creation and the way things normally run gives him now authority over our lives. It means everything else that he said was true. It is is proof that he is the Savior that God sent, that his death was an atonement for our sins, that now he is the Lord of all things, deserves our worship and our utter devotion. That's what the resurrection means. That's why it's so important to the story of the gospel. Now, for many of you that are Christians or familiar with Christianity, all of this is second nature. This is, the, this is the story that lies at the center of all that we believe and how we live. But notice the amazing thing in verse 34. The disciples understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, again, we find that utterly astonishing because we've read the end of Luke, Right? We know that's what happens. That everything Jesus said was going to come to pass actually came to pass. Just as a side note, isn't it kind of shameful that uh, usually we hear the end of the story before we hear the rest of it? Someone shares the gospel with us and we don't just read through Luke or Mark or John or Matthew just kind of sequentially and the tension builds and then he really does come back to life. Uh, Maybe we should rethink uh, how we do evangelism in that way. But nevertheless, that's a freebie. Uh, Why we we come back and we think, uh, how could they not know this? But remember, the disciples had not seen the end of Luke's gospel yet. They hadn't read those books. They didn't know what was going to happen. They had not yet come to terms with the fact that their expectations of the Messiah were going to be different from who the Messiah was really going to be. They had not yet understood that the reigning king was also going to be the suffering servant. That the promises of places like 2 Samuel 7 where God is going to give David a descendant whose kingdom shall never end would also be the one in Isaiah 53 who comes to bear the iniquities of God's people Israel. How could they not see that though? How could they not put those things together? Jesus even castigates the the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers who have large chunks of the Scripture memorized but have not put those things together. And he says, you should have seen that. You should have seen that. Why can't they see it? Well, what does Luke say? It was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Now, now why was it hidden? Who hid it? Well, I, I don't think it's so much a who but a what. 
I think D.A. Carson is right when he says, this is one of the effects of the corrosive blinding power of sin. It so dulls our vision and distorts our perspective that it shuts off crucial parts of evidence so we cannot see the truth and the greatness and the glory of God's revelation. It wasn't that God was intentionally keeping them from seeing the gospel. It was that the sinfulness and the selfishness of their own hearts didn't want to believe that part of the gospel. What they wanted more than anything was a conquering king. They wanted someone with the Spirit of God coming upon him with such power that when he was ready, an army would rise out of Israel, wiping out the Roman legions, driving them out of the promised land, where they would be restored to the former glories, the days of David, a holy and righteous land, worshiping God, saved from all their enemies. That is what they wanted more than anything else. And so the thought of a meek and a humble Savior who would not drive out the Caesars from their land but sin from their hearts is not what they were looking for. And so even though they were being told, this is what you're going to get, they remain blinded to it because of their sin. Lest we shake our heads at their blindness today, we must not mistake that we suffer from the same problem as they do. Even though we may have understood and believed the gospel for salvation, we remain, at least in part, blinded to the fullness of that revelation. You say, how do you know? Because I can look in the mirror, I can look across this room, and I see people that have not achieved perfect sanctification. I see people in this room and in the mirror, one person anyway in the mirror, unless you think I'm bonkers, but one person in the mirror and many people in this room who still have idols, who still have uh, bigotry in their hearts, who still have things that prevent them from living the way that God wants them to live in its fullness. They make choices and priorities that are completely out of step with what God says and sometimes are preached on week after week after week. But the thing is, they cherish those sins. This is what they think they want. This is what they think they need. This is what they think is right. So they become deaf and, and blind to what God is speaking into their hearts. They have the same problem as the disciples. They do not hear clearly the fullness of the gospel, though it's being unveiled to them. We do not hear fully the revelation and see the glory of the gospel as it is being revealed to us. So this morning, I just want to challenge all of us to stop and ask and say, what kind of things might I be blind to in my life? Perhaps God has been nagging you, picking at you. Perhaps he's been convicting you and you have been denying it. You have been turning away. You've been justifying your sin before him. All the while, he's been making it clear to you. No, no, the gospel calls you to something different. The gospel calls you to let go of that thing, to, to put it second, third, fifth place in your life and to allow my son to be first in your life. Whatever it is that we're clinging to, we must not make the same mistake as the disciples. We need to pray that God will open our eyes. And we can pray with confidence because that's what he says he does. In 2 Corinthians 4, though sin blinds us to the realities of the gospel, he speaks and creates light into our minds and our hearts, just as he did on the first day of creation that we might see and believe and be changed by Christ. 
So you have the gospel unveiled, but it's unveiled to people that are blinded to it. People that cannot fully see what is being said. Surely they thought they understood what was, what was being talked about. They filtered it through their grid of understanding and said, okay, okay I, I, we, we get that, we get that. Uh, it'll look like he suffers defeat, but then, but then he'll triumph, right? And, and, and Rome will be gone. But the great irony here is that they can't tell they're actually blind to the things that are being unveiled to them. They, they, they're blind to understanding what is being plainly taught. But at the same time, while these disciples who had traveled with Jesus for years could not see the reality of who he was, Luke presents us with another man who, though physically blind, has spiritual sight to see exactly who Jesus is. And so we saw the gospel unveiled, but now we need to see the gospel understood. The gospel understood. Luke says that as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. Now we know this is not just some anonymous blind man. Luke's, uh, excuse me, Mark's gospel tells us that this man's name is Bartimaeus. And again, we know the chronology of the book. We know that he's sitting in this place outside Jericho on the road because it's the time of the Passover. And because for, for Jews who wanted to avoid the land of Samaria as they're making their way up to Jerusalem, they would have taken this road through Jericho. It was a natural path for pilgrims coming to worship Passover to go. And with this huge influx of people meant many more people from which to, to beg and to gather alms or food or whatever they were going to give. And so while he's sitting here begging, there, there is some commotion, some excitement. And, and, and he, he can obviously hear, though he can't see, something's going on. So he calls out, uh, what, what's happening? Well, what's going on? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And immediately he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I fear probably like today, no one was really concerned about this, this blind beggar. No one was concerned about Bartimaeus. He contributed nothing to society. He just, he just uh, sat there and, and, and begged. And so whether they thought Jesus was too busy or they didn't want Jesus being asked for money, they told this guy, just be quiet. Just, just be quiet. Just sit there and when he's gone, you can, you can continue begging. But that didn't really stop Bartimaeus. In fact, he cried out all the more, Luke tells us. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice that when he knows Jesus is coming, he doesn't ask for money. Did you notice that? He's been, he's been begging for money. He's been asking for money from all the other travelers, but when Jesus comes by, he stops. And what does he do? He asks for mercy. But notice also something else. The crowds call him what? Jesus of Nazareth. But what does Bartimaeus call him? Jesus, the son of of David. Now what's going on here? Why why is why is he see uh, why does he change what he says, what he asks for? It's because he sees something that the others can't see. Well Jesus hears him and he stops, we're told, and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, "What do you want me to do for you?" And he said, "Lord, let me recover my sight." Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now we just have to say, 
with some regret that preachers will often take the passage like this and have a field day using it as support for some kind of prosperity message claiming that God will give you all the blessings that you want as long as you have enough faith. And frankly, that's very convenient for those kinds of preachers because they immediately have an out if you don't get everything that you want. I mean, they can promise you literally the world, but if you don't get it, hey, that's no, that's no skin off their back because you're the one that didn't have enough faith. That's always the contingent that they'll build into their presentation. You didn't have enough faith to see God do it, so it's not my fault that you didn't get what you want, that you didn't get what I promised you could have. So let's just be clear, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. The, the, the point is not that Bartimaeus somehow earned a healing because of his faith. No, just the opposite. Theologian B.B. Warfield said that Christ saves through faith, which means that saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but the object of faith, Christ himself. So, Faith is a conduit. If you are a little kid, then think about faith as a straw, okay? Faith is a straw. It's the means by which your apple juice or your Coke or whatever it is or your chocolate milk gets into your mouth. It is not, it is not the beverage itself. Do you understand? Faith is the conduit by which we receive God's blessing, not how we earn it. And you say, well, how can you be sure about that? Well, I know because Paul's, uh, or Christ's authoritative apostle who speaks on his behalf, Paul explains, faith itself doesn't come from us. It's a gift. That's what he says in Ephesians 2.8 and in Philippians 1.29. He says, you have been appointed to suffer, but you've also been granted to believe. In other words, it has been gifted to you, faith in God. So faith can never be a work. It is rather the means by which God's work comes into our life. Therefore, just as salvation is a gift of God's grace that comes to us through faith in Christ, so the gift of God's healing also came through faith in Christ. This man understands the gospel and who Jesus is as the fulfillment of that gospel. He sees not with physical eyes, but with the eye of faith. And this is why healing comes to him. Now the question is, what, what, what did he actually believe? What did he understand? What could he see that others could not? We might say another way, what does this faith, that what he sees by faith, produce in his life. And we see four things. First of all, Bartimaeus is able to see the fulfillment of Scripture's promise. He is able to, to see the fulfillment of Scripture's promise. As we said before, God, God was not hiding overtly the gospel message. He was telling people, this is what you should expect. This is what it's going to look like. And, but over time, he certainly filled out that gospel message. The, the gospel message begins in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve bring sin into the world. And immediately, God says, here is what redemption will look like. A godly son born from the woman who, though injured, will crush and defeat Satan. He, the, the serpent will simply bite him in the heel, but the sun will destroy his head. And what does that mean? That means, Adam, though you have failed, a second Adam is going to come and he will succeed. Though you have brought a curse into this world, he will reverse that curse out of this world 
and bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God is, is underlining, um, recommitting himself to, and expanding on that promise of Genesis 3.15. Okay? So if you want to know, how do I read the Bible in a Christ-centered way? Start with Genesis 3.15 and say, how does this passage relate to that promise? And it will become crystal clear, at least over time it will, on how Jesus is a thread that runs throughout the Old Testament. And here, Bartimaeus understands that. Why? Because, again, he switches titles. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. It is Jesus, the son of David. Who's the son of David? The Messiah is the son of David. The promised Savior is the son of David. The son of Eve from Genesis 3.15 via 2 Samuel 7 is the son of David. So Bartimaeus understands that all the promises of God about sending the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior King, is fulfilled in Christ. That's what he sees by not physical sight, but the eye of faith. And what does that do? That gives him confidence then in Christ's power. Because he, ha- he can see with the eyes of faith, Bartimaeus was confident in Christ's power. Think about the request that he makes. He doesn't ask for money. Again, what does he call out for? Mercy. And Jesus basically says, will you tell me what mercy means to you? And he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now you think about that request and what it says about how he thinks about Jesus. I've told before the story of Alexander the Great who um, had a particular uh, general whose uh, military prowess he appreciated. And so as uh, his daughter is about to be married, Alexander offers to pay for the the general's daughter's wedding. And so he says, you know, put it on credit and send me the bill. And so uh, however long it is that goes by and the bill comes to Alexander's steward who is aghast at the cost of this affair it's just ridiculous and he brings it to alexander he's like can you believe this and it fully fully expects alexander to just order this guy off of his head and um recover recover the money how can anyone presume on that kind of generosity given by alexander why would you go and it'd be like someone says here's a blank check to cover to cover the expense of the party and instead of inviting the 20 people that you thought of, you invite all 200 from your subdivision. Instead of getting the hamburger patties, you order the filet mignon. And, and, you know, it, just, it, just, it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And you're just thinking, oh, who would ever think to do this? And Alexander says, no problem, pay the bill. And the steward is like, what? What do you mean pay the bill? And Alexander says, you, you don't understand. By asking for so much, the general actually honors me. By asking for so much, he shows that he thinks I am both wealthy and generous. I am both powerful enough and benevolent enough to meet this request. And that's the same thing that Bartimaeus is doing. He is exalting Christ by asking for something so audacious as to have his sight restored. He has such confidence, such faith in the power of Christ that he knows for Jesus, this means nothing. This is, this is nothing to him. This is not some great work that will, that will strain his energy and cause him to be weakened. No, this is nothing. He can do it in a heartbeat, in a blinking moment of an eye if he wants. And so this huge request honors Christ, which is why Jesus says, recover your sights, and immediately the man is able to see. 
You think about that. At the beginning of Jesus' sentence, this man has been blind for years, has lived with his disability, and by the end of Jesus' sentence, he can see again with as much clarity as he ever has before. That is the power of Christ. But that power is not just for physical healing. Throughout the Bible, a request for mercy is always associated with sinfulness and the need for forgiveness. Of our inability to make atonement or restitution for our sins and the need for mercy to not get what we deserve. And so the man's recovery of sight is meant to point us to the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is just as powerful in dealing with spiritual healing as he is with physical healing. And because Bartimaeus sees with the eyes of faith, he knows this. He sees the fulfillment of Scripture's promise. He shows confidence in Christ's power. And all of that leads him to be ready, to be prepared to follow in the disciples' path. That's the third thing that we see. Bartimaeus was willing to follow the disciples' path. Bartimaeus is healed. Luke tells us, verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus. What does that mean? In other words, Bartimaeus was not just looking at Jesus as a means to an end. He wasn't just, what can Jesus give to me? And that's what I'll take and that's what I'll use him for. That's not how, that's not how this man was looking at Jesus. Bartimaeus is revealing the fullness, the authenticity of his faith by following after him as one of his disciples. And frankly, this is what real faith looks like. This is what real faith looks like. This guy probably did not have much, but he left it all behind just like the 12 apostles did, just like the 70 who came later and followed with and traveled with and ministered alongside Jesus. It's important that we understand faith is not a passive come and go, do as I please kind of thing. Well, when it's convenient, I'll be a disciple. When it's convenient, I'll follow Christ. And when I have other things, then I'm out because I've got other things to do, God. Discipleship is not like that. Faith in Christ is not like that. It's not about getting something out of it for a while or just tipping your, dipping your toe in or, or just going for a test drive or any other image you can think about that speaks to something done half-heartedly. That's not authentic faith. That is not living a life of discipleship. Following Christ is about commitment. It is about death to everything you hold dear if Christ says, get rid of it. And you say yes, because you trust him. You love him. You want to obey him and you want to follow him and serve him. And though we waffle and we waver at various times in our life on those things, obviously, and the Bible calls that sin, if that is not the trajectory of our life, is that not at our best of times when we say, this is what I want my life to be like, then we should not presume to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We should not say, well, I'll play as a disciple and I'll play at church and I'll play at loving and think, I'm okay with God because I said a prayer and I was baptized and my name's on a roll book somewhere. No. No, this is what real faith looks like. Getting up, leaving your past behind and saying, I'm following you, Christ, and you lead me wherever you want me to lead. You lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And I know that though it might be painful, though I might have to let go of things, it is for my good and your glory. The last thing we see from Barnabas' vision of Christ is that now as a disciple, he was living for God's glory. 
The same should be true for us. If we're seeing Christ clearly, if we're seeing Him with the eye of faith, then we should live for God's praise. We should live for God's praise. Verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why does he glorify God? Because the amount of his faith is not what determined his healing. God healed him. And therefore, God gets the glory, not himself. God is worshiped. God is exalted. God is praised for what has happened. But more than that, notice, those looking on also gave praise to God. Why were they praising God? Well, most obviously because they just saw him heal a guy. So Jesus heal a guy. And so they give praise to God for it. But I suspect that Luke perhaps wants us to see more than that. More than just the physical healing, because I think with this so immediately tied to that language of discipleship, I think that perhaps even if the people there weren't immediately clear on why they were praising God, what we should understand is that the way that we respond to Christ, His spiritual healing of our sin, His calling us to discipleship, that the way we live in response to that should not only bring God glory directly from our hearts, but should lead others to be encouraged to praise God by the change that they see in our lives. Growing up, I I loved Transformers. I mean, it was G.I. Joe and it was Transformers and it just didn't get better than that after school. Okay, that was my hour, all right, with my little Debbie oatmeal cream pie, and that was it. But the reality is God's people are meant to be the real transformers. You you read 1 Corinthians, and every sin imaginable, every sin that if you are a believer, you would think would be repugnant to you now, Paul says, yes, and such were some of you. Were, Were you a murderer? Yes. Were you homosexual? Yes. Were you an idolater? Yes. Were you disobedient to your parents? Yes. Did you you engage in all manner of unscrupulous business dealings? Yes. Did you prioritize your pleasure and gratification above all other responsibilities in life? Yes. That's what you used to live like. But now... You are in Christ, and he has begun a change in your life whereby those things no longer mark you as your identity. Christ marks you as your identity. He is who you are now. You have been changed. You have been transformed into something new. You're no longer just a man. You're no longer just a woman. You're no longer just American. You're now a Christian. And when people see that change whether inside the church or outside the church, when they see that transformation, they should be provoked to give God praise. So again, how do you live? How do you talk? Is it about you or is it about God? How do you follow Christ? How do you live as a disciple? Is it about what's easiest for you or is it about what's most glorifying to God? Are you aware that the eyes of others are upon you? Very often, little eyes in this room and in these hallways and in your house, but also sorrowful eyes that know they need something more than what they have and they're looking for anything to give their life meaning and significance and change. 
Are you pressing hard into sanctification so that those eyes that are looking at you will see clearly God's hand at work in your life and give Him praise? Are you opening your mouth so that they will be able not just to guess, but to know that the change being brought about comes through Jesus and Jesus alone? In his book on the miracles of Jesus, Richard Phillips makes a point of connecting physical problems as a sign of our spiritual problems. He observes that leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and condemning presence. The the lame show sin's debilitating power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that is always the result of our bondage to sin and Satan. For each miracle that Jesus does in healing someone, there is analogy between the, the physical need of the body and the spiritual need of the soul. There's a picture of healing spiritually that God provides in Christ. And here, blind Bartimaeus shows by his disability the blinding effects of sin and yet by his faith and pleas for mercy, he also shows that Christ is willing and able to save. So today, so today we must not be like the disciples who heard but couldn't see and understand because of the sinfulness of their heart. Today, either for salvation for the first time, or for another moment of sanctification, we must call out for God's mercy that He might send His Spirit to remove the blindness of sin from our eyes that we might follow Christ and live for God's glory. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. That just as You spoke light into darkness and so brought the world into existence, all of creation, Responding to your command to simply exist, so also might you shine an illuminating light into our hearts. Now, Father, we might see with the eyes of faith the truth of who Christ is and put our full confidence in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.